started talking last week about the fact that we are blessed. Right? We are blessed. Not like the world says we're blessed, right? Not like the world says, you know, what, what the world calls blessings. We know those things are physical for the most part. The world likes to look at the glitter and, and say, look how blessed I am because of all my shiny stuff. Well, we know that's not even true. We know that, that that's just a temporary blessing that will perish. True blessings are the blessings that only God can give us. You know, they, they fill us on the inside. They're things that you can't buy with money. You can only get them in a personal relationship with Jesus. You will not find them anywhere else. Every other blessing is cheap stuff of the world. The only eternal blessings are from above. Amen to that? Amen. So from last week, we talked about the fact that, you know, these, these blessings, they have nothing to do with what's visible, but everything to do with what is inside, what's in here. And knowledge of this, right, wisdom, knowledge of knowing what true blessings are, that we are blessed because of God. When you know that, you become a huge blessing for God, right? I mean, you, all of a sudden, you become you become a, like a, a, a slice of heaven on earth because in you, not only is the Holy Spirit living, but, but you are now giving him his free reign in your life. And he's able to use you to your fullest potential. And so you become a huge blessing to God. We also said that only turkeys worship turkeys, right? right. So today I want to, I wanna, in the weeks to come, we're going to, Kind of unpack, and since we're going to unpack, I have a gift for us. Are we excited about my fireplace? All right, go. <laughs> so we have a gift that we're going to unpack, and over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack several gifts. These are true gifts, by the way. Um, you know, maybe your kids have a list of things that they want for Christmas, yes? Maybe you have a list. Caitlin, you have a list? Did you give it to Jacob? He'd make a fine Santa Claus that Jacob would. These are true gifts, okay? Because all those things are nice, you know, they're nice. But th this gift that I want to reveal this morning and these gifts that we're going to look at over the next few weeks are truly, uh, really gifts from God. Now watch this. This is going to be amazing. Woo! So we're going to talk about the gift of, you got it, joy. Joy. Not just any joy, but joy from above. Joy that only comes from God. Right, a joy that is so deep rooted in you that nothing can steal it from you. That no matter what happens to us, you know, as we live our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and the good times and the low times in life and marriage and death and sickness, no matter what happens, no one can steal the joy that only that God can give you. And when we are seeking Christ in our life, we're seeking to have God alive in us, and he brings that kind of joy into your life. Nothing can rob you of that joy. And today we are blessed with joy from above. Joy from above. It's a gift that God wants you to have. Okay, He wants you to have. He wants us to experience this gift. It's the gift of joy, right? That God, God poured out from heaven to earth for you and for me. Right? It didn't come from the earth. It doesn't come from the earth. Everything else that comes from the earth that gives you temporary joy or pleasure is just that, temporary. 
but the joy that God pours out from heaven, that's eternal. Those are the gifts that will last forever. Those are the gifts that are on the inside that no one can take from you, right? Then no matter what happens to us in this world, the devil can't rob that from you. These gifts that we're going to talk about, and joy is the first one. It's inexpressible joy, right? That we can't even begin to put our finger on it because it's so amazing. It's so powerful. It's so eternal. It's so deeply rooted in God that we can't even explain it. Right? It's like, it's so good. It's like, you know, a, the, you know I can't even compare it to drugs because people take drugs because they want to feel good, right? They go out and they get drunk because they think they want to feel good. This joy that God puts in our hearts is so good. I mean, it's so good that there isn't anything in this world that would even come close to that. It's a glad heart joy. It's a, it's a joyful song kind of joy, right? It's a go out with dancing and joy kind of joy. Habakkuk, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, minor prophets, said these words in Habakkuk 3.18. He said, I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk said, I will be joyful. Where? In God. In God, my Savior. Not in the things of this world. Not in the next, you know, Stanley Cup or championship or, or paycheck. Right? That's where the world goes looking for joy. Right? I remember growing up as a kid, that's what we looked forward to was the weekend. Right? As young people, you look forward to the weekend. School's out and Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, party. That's what it was. Big party. And that's where we look forward to. That's where we put our joy is in the weekend. When the weekend gets here, we're going to be able to go party, right? That's what we felt was joyful as young people. And God gives us many reasons to be full of joy. Lots of reasons to be full of joy. We could all name a number of them. I want to share with you a couple of them today, okay? First one is this. The reason why we should be filled with joy is this, number one, because the rising sun is greater than the growing wickedness. Okay, get that in your mind real quick. The rising sun is greater than the growing wickedness. Okay, we know we live in a world that's getting darker and darker. Further and further away from God, right? That's where the world is going. It doesn't take a genius to see that. You don't need a degree to read the headlines, to see the news, to, to, to hear what's going on, not just in this country, but all around the world. People moving further and further away from anything that is godly, anything that is of truth or a standard or morality. Further and further away, the world is moving. And I'm here to tell you this morning that we can have joy deep in our hearts because, because the rising sun is greater than the growing wickedness. In the book of Malachi, if you want to flip there, you can. Malachi is a great Italian prophet, one of my favorite guys in, the, in all of the Bible. He's a prophet for, uh, for God, and his, um, it, what's cool about Malachi, or Malachi, some of you know him as, uh, is that his name means my messenger, right? My messenger, that's what his name means. Or it means messenger of Yahweh. Now, how cool is it to be known as that, right? You know, people are known for a lot of things. Screwball, moron, you know, other things. But to be known as my messenger or messenger of Yahweh, when people see you, they go, there's the messenger of Yahweh. How, how cool is that, right? To have that title, to have that name, to, for your name to mean God's messenger. 
And that's Malachi. That's, that's what he's all about. And God calls him to speak for, for, for God. And so he's speaking in chapter 4 of Malachi of the coming judgment. And here's what he says. Chapter 4, he says this. Surely the day is coming. I, it will burn like a furnace, right? That's, what, that's what's coming in the future. He's speaking of something that is to come. Hasn't come yet, but it's going to come one day in the future. Malachi speaking from the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament, right before, you know, the years of silence and then the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene. Malachi, one of the minor prophets, he's speaking of a day to come in the future. Hasn't even come yet, but it will come. He speaks of this and he says, it will come like a burning furnace. Remember, Peter talked about fire, how the whole earth will be destroyed by fire. First, it was destroyed by water. Next, it will be destroyed by fire. Malachi says, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble, he says. And the day, remember that, the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. That's not good news for those who do not honor God. That is not good news for the wickedness of the world and the evildoers of the world or those who are not sold out for God and for his son. That's a bad word for them. This is not a good news for them. And, and, and if you think about this, he wrote in the Old Testament, remember we talked about the armor of God and what Paul said in Romans about putting on the armor of God and the strongholds, right, and the authorities in heavenly places and deep-seated places and evil places that are up against us. This is a continuation of that truth from the Old Testament to Paul in the New Testament, this idea of God destroying evil, that one day, God will say, enough is enough. And he will put his foot down and his divine power will demolish every stronghold and all ungodliness. One day, God is going to say, it is over. It's finished. And Malachi is already predicting that that day is coming and judgment is coming. Verse 2, he says this, but for you, for you, for those of you who choose to live for God, you get to choose now, right? We all get to choose. Who are we going to live for? Are we going to live for ourselves or are we going to live for God? Are we going to live for the world or are we going to live for God? Are we going to live for money and careers and things of this world or are we going to live for God? Where are we going to find our strength? Where are we going to find our joy? Where are we going to seek truth, right? We all get to decide that. He says, but for you, those of you who revere or honor or glorify my name, he says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. He says the son of righteousness, the son of vindication, some of your translations may say vindication. Con the context of this passage is that there will be the day of the Lord. It is coming. The day of the Lord, judgment is coming. When God says, that's enough. Time to make things right. One day that will come. And, and, and Malachi is talking about this day of the Lord when Jesus will return and he will set all things straight. And as sure as the sun rises during the day and gives light to the day, as sure as that happens every day, you look outside and there's the sun, so will Jesus come back. As certain as that sun is sitting in the sky right now. It's coming. And when, when, when we find Christ, when we find that hope, we find joy, true joy. 
because greater is the rising sun in your life than the wickedness that is growing all around us. Verse 3, he says this, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day, on the day. When I act, says the Lord Almighty. That's a good word for those who honor God, those who revere his name, who give glory to God, who are living their lives for him. That's a good word. For those who are not, it's not such a good word. But God will have the final word. And that alone brings joy. Right? Knowing that we are connected, that all of us have the opportunity to know the God of all creation who made it all and will end it all when he's ready, to know him. To know that the rising sun is greater than the growing wickedness in this world. That's joy. You can't buy that joy. You can't get it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't do anything for it except understand it's true and accept it in your life. And when you do that, here's what happens. Check it out. The gift of joy is yours, right? Wickedness is crushed. Okay? Evil will be crushed. Those who honor God, he says, will be blessed. And the sun of righteousness will rise. And what does that mean? That means victory. That means all those who are connected to him will have victory. And check this out. He says, you will go out and frolic. So I was wondering if we had a couple volunteers that would like to show us what that means. <laughs> frolic. That's a good word, isn't it? Frolic. How many times have you ever used that in your life? Anybody? Frolic. Stop frolicking. No. <laughs> go outside and frolic. You say that to the kids, David? Go frolic. Kaylin, go outside and frolic. It means play, right? It just means to play, right? It means to, like, go out and, and, and enjoy. Enjoy life. Play. And, and he, he gives you a mental picture. He says, like calves like calves that are well-fed, like calves that are, that are healthy, like calves released from the shed as they run out and they jump for joy because they're free, because they have this sense of freedom and joy in their lives. He says, you go out and frolic. You go out and play, running and leaping and praising God. That's what we should be doing, right? I mean, we've got... That in our lives right now. We ought to all be frolicking. Don't tell anybody you're going to go do that, but just kind of do it, you know. As you, as you live in this dark world, right, where wickedness and evil things seem to get worse and grow, you have the gift of complete joy. Complete and perfect joy. Number two. The second reason that we are to be full of joy, or we should be full of joy, is because our strength comes from the Lord. That's where our strength comes from. It comes from God, knowing that we're not going to be able to face this world without God. If we go at it trying to face this world, walking in it on our own or with some people, but without God, we are in trouble. We will never conquer the deep darkness of evil as human beings. The only thing that will give you the power to conquer is the Holy Spirit living in your life. God living in your life, giving you the victory. Because the victory is his. Nehemiah was a prophet. If you want to flip back to Nehemiah, I'm going to look, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah for a minute. He's a prophet. He's a governor of Israel. 
Ezra, during Nehemiah's time, is a teacher of God's to Israel. Nehemiah has been taken away into captivity, in, in this, and he's in the city of Susa, which is in Babylon. And there he is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And he's been there a long time, but he gets word that Israel, the Jews, his people, back in Jerusalem, are really struggling. They're hurting. They need help. They're in desperate need of God. They're in desperate need of help. They're in desperate need of salvation. They're in desperate need of God's word back in their lives. And they are wandering and they're lost and their joy is gone. And so Nehemiah in chapter, uh, chapter 8, Nehemiah, well, chapter 1, he goes to the king and, two, and he asks the king if he can go back and help his people. And so he asks for all kinds of things, help, support, wood, <laughs> and materials, uh, physical uh, support from the nations around that will want to come up against him. And so he boldly tells the king what he would like. The king gives him everything he needs. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, And in chapter 8, they get done building the walls, right? As, as the first seven chapters begin to unfold. And they, they enter into this amazing time of worship. And, and this is really important for us. This is, like, this is like kind of like a glimpse, a sneak peek into the Old Testament, God's people worshiping God. Such a great passage. Chapter 8, you really need to go there and underline some things in your Bible. And, and just look at this as we kind of look through this chapter of chapter 8. It's so good because it just reveals to us these people living thousands of years ago and how they respond to God, how they worship God, right? It's a good pattern for us. It's good for us to know this is, this is how God's people should worship him. And, and check out what happened. So it's the seventh month and came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, okay? The, the, the wall is built, it's completed, and this is the seventh month, so it's the time of the Feast of Trumpets. Soon it will be the time of the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and then also the Feast of Tabernacle, which are the three feasts in the fall that will all happen kind of back to back. These celebrations we talked about last week, right? These celebrations. And so all the people come together here. They all come together in the courtyard at the water gate. I know, the water gate. Don't think that. Okay. This is an actual gate on the east side by the Kidron, uh, by the Kidron Valley, uh, by the um, spring of the Gihon Spring. And so over on this side is this big, big courtyard, this square, where it's big enough because all the people gather. And if you look up in chapter 7, just a few verses, you see how many all the people is. It's like over 42,000 people. That's not a small group, right? That's 42,000 people all getting together in this, like this, this courtyard outside the water gate. And Ezra and Nehemiah are all gathered there, and the, the Levites are there, and they're, they're there. They're going to play a part in all this, but check out what happens. So they, they settle in their towns, and all the people assemble with one accord in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, the people, tell Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book 
of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so the people are saying, we want, remember, Nehemiah has left where he was in Babylon. He has come back. They have completed rebuilding the walls, which was amazing feat. If you check out those seven chapters, amazing work, teamwork of people coming together to rebuild this wall. And now the wall is complete. All the gates are rebuilt and they're ready to celebrate. And they're going to move into this fall time of sacred uh, giving thanks to God, where the work is done and now it's time to give God thanks as these feasts begin to unfold in the seventh month. And so they ask Ezra to go get the law of Moses and bring it out. Now check out what happens. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the high priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud the word of God from daybreak, the, the law of Moses, from daybreak until noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So, this, so, so there's the stage. It's all set, right? The wall has been rebuilt. God has answered their prayers. Nehemiah has come back. Ezra is the teacher of Israel. All of the Levites are there to help with the learning process and the teaching and the clarifying. We're going to find out that in a minute. But they're all there and they have thankful hearts. And what they really realize most of all is that they need to get back to the word. That we need the word of God. We want to hear the word of God. And they listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 4, Ezra and the teacher of the law stood. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on the high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right were these Levite guys, right? They were all there standing right next to them, right next to Ezra. He opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people stood up. Check out this attitude and this posture of worship. Verse 6, Ezra... Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. I don't know how he did that, but he just thanked God for, for the moment. Thank God for being with them. Thank God for, for bringing them up out of Egypt and, and being with them all this time and preserving them in this world. He thanked God and all the people responded, amen and amen. But look what they did. They lifted their hands and they said, amen and amen. I mean, how cool is that? Ezra reads the law, and all the people stand before God, and they say, Amen and Amen. You are God. It's like this, this scene of 40,000 people surrendering to God, saying, God, we need you. Look, I got nothing in my hands. I can't do anything on my own. We need you. And so that's their worship right there. They're, the book, the, the, the law is read. The people respond. They raise their hand. They say amen. Then they bow down and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. The, the Levites, these guys that were there with uh, Ezra, said, it says this about them. They instruct the people in the in, uh, while the people were standing there, they, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. 
I mean, it's this great scene of Ezra reading the word, the people praising God, falling on their faces, and then the Levites are in, intermixed in the crowd as they're explaining to the people what the law means so that the people can go and live it. Right? How cool is that? I mean, that's, that's their worship. Right? It's just this, this love that they have for God and his word that, that they had wandered away, and now they have made their way back, and God has answered their prayers, and the wall has been rebuilt. And they see hope. They see a future again. First time in a long time. And they have joy is coming back into their hearts because of what God is doing. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. In other words, this is Thanksgiving Day. Right, this is Thanksgiving Day. This is the day that we got our act together and we turned back to the Lord. And we got real with God. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time. But this is the day that we give thanks because we're getting real with God. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They're just listening to Ezra read and they're crying. Because they remember. This is not like us several thousand years later just reflecting on what happened to them, their experience. This is them, some of them living through some of this stuff. Remembering their grandparents and what they went through. And how God led them and then how they wandered away and how God brought them back. And they wandered away and then they were carried off into exile because they were rebellious toward God. And now, now they have another chance. God is bringing it back together. The walls are rebuilt. Nehemiah has come. Ezra's reading the law. And there's a light that is kindling in their midst. And in verse 10, Nehemiah says, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. How awesome is this? The day of work is over. The wall has been rebuilt. Now we're moving into this time of giving thanks. This day, he says, is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Right? The joy of the Lord is what's going to carry us through. The joy that we can only get by honoring him. Right? That joy that's yours only in a relationship with him. That joy is yours. He says, this day... This day, right, this day is holy to God. And every day we live, we say, God, this day is holy to you. This 24-hour period, God, is a gift from you. I'm giving it back to you. It's holy to you. I'm not doing anything on this gifted day that wouldn't honor you. All right, that's what we say as believers and followers of Christ. This day is holy. And he says, do not grieve because joy triumphs over fear and joy triumphs over grief. The joy of the Lord is our strength, he says. You can go, you can celebrate, you can worship the Lord your God because worshiping God and being in his presence is a party. It's a party. It's a celebration. The King of kings and the Lord of lords that no one can touch, you are in his care. And that's where the joy is. It's right there in him, with him. He has a set feast for before us, right? He set this feast before us, and in his presence, in the presence of our enemies, God will be victorious. 
even though we walk in a world that's full of evil. Right? We won't fear because he's with us. Right? His joy will sustain us in the midst of it all. The, the highs and the lows of your life, the wickedness of this world, and the good times, the worship and the cares and the trials of this life, through it all, you and I have this gift of complete joy. That's good news, isn't it? The third reason that you should be full of joy is this. Final reason. If you have invited Christ into your life, right? If you've given your life over to Christ, you've been washed in his blood, right? You've been baptized into Christ. You have, been, you have given your heart to him. You are sold out to Christ. If Christ is living in you, then the Holy Spirit is in you. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom, right? Yes? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You're ahead of me, Kev. You got ahead of me, see <laughs> where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But also, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is joy. There's joy, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is. If, if the Holy Spirit is alive in you, I mean, there should be joy there, right? Because you have conquered everything in this world. Unspeakable joy. In the book of Acts, if you want to flip there, Acts 13, Barnabas and Paul are traveling the country, right? They're proclaiming the good news. That's what they're doing. They're all over the place preaching the good news of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, hope in Jesus, right? This new covenant that God has given us through Jesus and his blood. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 16, Paul stands up and he motions with his hands and he said to the people of Israel, you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And so for the next 17 through verse 41, Paul, procla or, or yeah, Paul proclaims about Jesus. He proclaims about the Old Testament. He proclaims about Abraham and all the history and the prophets and the kings right up to forgiveness of sins in Christ. All right? Paul proclaims that in, in Acts 13. In verse 42, it says this. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue at the end of his message, the people invited him to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Okay. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that what God's people do? Right, we just saw it in Nehemiah. People, God's people gather to hear the word of the Lord. Right? That's what we do. We want to hear God's word. Right? We have it available to us. They didn't all have it available to them, but we have it available to us. But we want to know the word of God. God's people, when, when you're seeking God, you want the word of the Lord. Right? Because you know it's food for your soul. Right? You have to have it. We have to have it. It's bread right, for our soul. And if we don't have it, we're going to starve. Right? And, and we can't just eat once a week. That's not going to work either. We hunger for the, the bread of life. And so they gather together, and they want to hear more. And Paul, um, Paul and Barnabas, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we, we, had, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I made you, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the, when the Gentiles had heard this, they were glad, and they were honored, and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but Jewish leaders incited a God-fearing woman of high standing and, and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up a persecution against Paul and against Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. Not, not good. So what did they do? Verse 51, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them, and they went on to Iconium. Verse 52. 
and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit because where the Holy Spirit is, there is joy, right? Where the Holy Spirit is, there is joy. If, if God's alive in your life, right, if he's living in you and you're growing in him and you're seeking him with all your heart, thirsting after God, then joy comes with the Holy Spirit in your life. In the midst of all the trouble, in the midst of the trial and the persecution that Paul and Barnabas were enduring, living and moving in their own lives in the armor of God, right? Because they had put on the armor of God because Paul told us we should put on the armor of God. So Paul was living and moving in the armor of God, standing, on, uh, standing their ground, right? On the rock. In that, in that position, they have complete joy. They have complete joy in the Lord. I mean, because that's the only place that we will ever find it. Blessed we are. And today we're reminded that the gift of joy comes from above. Like all other, all other joy is, is temporary. All other joy, wherever you find joy, we know, you and I both know, that it's short-term satisfaction. It isn't deep eternal joy, unless it comes from above, right? The gift of joy comes to us, and we are filled with that joy because the rising sun of righteousness is greater than the growing evil of the world. We can be filled with this joy because the, the Lord, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we can be filled with this joy because the Holy Spirit living in you brings God's joy into your life. The story of Jesus' birth, lots of different things happened in the story of Jesus' birth. One of those things was the joy that was present at the birth of Christ. Remember Mary, she went to visit Elizabeth. They both were pregnant. John the Baptist is in Elizabeth. Mary has Jesus in her. And the baby leaps for joy. And in Mary's song, Mary says these words, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In the birth of Jesus, there is this joy. Because heaven came down. And when heaven comes down, he brings joy. And when heaven is living in you, right, when you've invited the Savior to come live in your life, he brings with him this joy. You can't buy it anywhere else. It's nowhere else to be found except in a living, breathing relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Later, when the shepherds were met by an angel, the angel said to them, don't fear. I bring you good news of great joy, right? In the birth of Jesus, joy comes down. It can only, it can only come from above because joy in the earth is not, not real joy. Wherever you go looking for your joy, it's not real if it didn't come from above. And when the Magi came to the house and they saw the star that was there at the house, the scripture says they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. Why? Because joy comes from above. That's the only place we will ever find this kind of deep 
rooted eternal joy is in Christ. You can find temporary joy in other places if you want. We all do. We all find joy in doing things for our grandkids, for our children, on vacation. We all find this joy. But we, we know as believers in Christ that that joy runs out. That joy is temporary. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. The only real joy, the only eternal joy, everlasting joy, comes from a relationship in Christ.